0: Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom.
1: Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Baseball is the quintessential American sport. Its long history dates back to the mid-19th century, but the sport has had a fractious history when it comes to race relations. Despite quite a large number of African Americans playing in various leagues alongside white players in the early years of the sport... By the turn of the 20th century, complete segregation took hold. A number of, quote, Negro Leagues were formed to allow for African Americans to play the sport, but various factors caused many of them to fail. Players faced serious discrimination, and some stadiums refused to let black teams play at their facilities. It all changed in 1920 when Rube Foster launched the Negro National League, reformulated several times with new leagues and owners, Negro League Baseball enjoyed periods of success in the early 1920s and again after the Great Depression. However, Jackie Robinson's integration of baseball in 1947 prompted a slow but irreversible influx of talent to the major leagues and the remaining Negro League teams, mostly folded by the 1960s. Middle Tennessee fielded a number of great African-American baseball players, and Nashville hosted several Negro League teams, including the Villains, the Black Vols, the Elite Giants, and the Stars. On December 16th of 2020, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred declared that the seven historic Negro Leagues would be recognized as official Major Leagues, with their players' records and statistics counted in baseball's record books. Joining us via Zoom today is Dr. Harriet Kimbrough-Hamilton. Dr. Kimbrough-Hamilton is a native of Nashville. She received her bachelor's in health and physical education from Fisk University, followed by her master's in sports administration from Florida State University. In 2003, she received her doctorate in sport and recreation management from Temple University. She has taught at Stillman College and Bethune-Cookman College before retiring from the faculty of Tennessee State University. She has written several books and articles on women's sports and Negro League Baseball, including Daddy's Scrapbook, Henry Kimbrough of the Negro Baseball League, A Daughter's Perspective, which she published in 2015. In 2017, Dr. Kimbrough Hamilton was inducted into the Fisk University Sports Hall of Fame. Dr. Harriet Kimbrough Hamilton, welcome to History's Hook.
2: Good morning. Good to be here.
1: And the studio with me is my co host, Marin County historian Joanne McClellan. Hello, Joanne.
3: Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Harriet. Good morning.
1: First off, Dr. Hamilton. Oftentimes, I start the show by asking our guest what got them interested in the topic that they are discussing uh, today. It's a pretty obvious one. Your father was Henry Kimbo, one of the Kimbro, one of the outstanding Negro League baseball players of the 20th century. We're going to get into his story a little bit later in the story. But what has baseball and Negro League baseball meant to you and your family?
2: Well, it was a family event. I can remember going with my family uh to Hadley Park in Nashville Tennessee to see my father play this was after he retired uh he retired 1953 and that was the year I was born so playing after that was just a local event for him so we would go with him to to see him play and most of the time my brother and I we didn't see him play we went to the playgrounds um and that's why we always got excited about going to a baseball game. And uh, so it, it, it was just part of our recreational time as a family uh, was to go to Hadley Park and uh, the local teams would play. And my father would still be playing, even though he had retired. And uh, he had on his uniform and we just saw him play uh most of the time. So that that, that meant a downtime for the family, fun time for the family. And really it wasn't until I got to high school that I learned uh from someone else that my father had played professional uh baseball really? in the Negro League.
1: He never spoke to you about it prior to that?
2: Never spoke to any of that part of his life. He Uh, He was a businessman. Uh, He owned his own uh, taxi company in Nashville and worked very hard. Uh, So that was uh, how I saw my dad. That's how I grew up, seeing my father, playing recreational baseball and then as a businessman.
1: Fascinating. So your degrees and your advanced degrees are in sports and sports management, uh, and you've written uh, history uh, as well. How much did how much do you think did baseball and your father's background have an influence on you as you went off to college?
3: Well, I
2: grew up uh, a tomboy. Um, My father was a man that was ahead of his time Uh, when he uh, would train my brother. You know, we would go. We had a huge backyard. And so uh, a lot of times he would tell me to come with with him and my brother to uh, learn how to catch the ball, how to throw the ball, how to slide, uh uh how to, you know, hit the ball, how to throw the ball. So, it, it was part of my growing up. And so my father did not make a distinction between myself and my brother. He didn't tell me to stay in the house and, you know, cuz you're a girl, oh no. Uh, he would encourage me and say, come on, let's let's go outside. And of course, I was always game for going outside. <laughs> uh, and so that became part of my life also. So I grew up uh, a tomboy. We were we were always outside with the boys, you know, all of us. And so that was part of my uh, youth was sports. And I loved sports and I played in college uh, I played uh, on Fisk University's first women's basketball team mm-hmm. uh, as a freshman. When I got to Fisk, uh, that was around Title IX era. And uh, so I, I played on the first women's basketball team. And also I played tennis for uh, Fisk and, uh, and, and became a coach. And so my career has been around sports.
1: That's fascinating. Today's topic is going to be on the Negro Leagues, the formation of it, and the eventual demise of the Negro League, uh, of Negro League Baseball. Let's talk a little bit about the formation of the Negro Leagues. It appears, and I'm learning this as I go, it appears that initially baseball teams were somewhat integrated early on. Now, baseball gets its start in the middle part of the 19th century, but that was not until after the Civil War that segregation of teams took place. What prompted these changes? Why Why? Why did the teams go from being somewhat integrated to being strictly segregated?
2: Well, I think it had a lot to do with uh, the issue of, of the South and the North and black and white, just uh, to put it bluntly. Um, and personally, this is my personal take, I think that uh, When someone saw uh, several African-American players on an on an integrated team, uh, I think racism played a part in that they felt threatened or uh, somewhat uncomfortable with uh, playing with an African-American on their team.
1: It seems perhaps that that uh, the playing field was a place of equality. Between athletes in a time when this country wasn't particularly interested in seeing equality, racial equality, does, Absolutely. That, does that sound like? And, mm-hmm.
2: and so, uh, I think they there needed to be a consistency across all uh, forms of sports, uh, all forms of business, all forms of anything. They they could not see. African-Americans and white playing together uh, at that time. I mean, this was the late part of the 1800s. Uh, and, and as it went into uh, the early 1900s, uh, there grew a sentiment uh, in professional baseball that, and an agreement that uh, all teams, all white teams would not allow African-Americans to play uh, on their team. And it was called the Gentleman's Agreement. And so as that, that went on, uh, the commissioner later on of professional baseball uh, made it uh, not a, a, a typical uh, rule, but an untypical rule and that he would not allow an, uh, African-Americans to play in professional baseball. And that was Mountain uh, Judge uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Right. And so he basically documented in an undocumented way uh, that to go forward in baseball. And it wasn't until Jackie Robinson uh, broke the color barrier that
1: that happened. Nashville had some baseball teams very early on. Uh, Joanne, you found uh, a baseball team as early as 1866. In Nashville,
3: yeah, it was sort of interesting, uh, Harriet. I love reading old newspaper articles, and I found an article from uh, September 16, 1866, where uh, African American men and one white man was playing on um, playing baseball in Nashville at Suffer Springs Bottoms, and um, a, they were playing on Sunday, so they were arrested for playing baseball on a Sunday, and they were taken to court and fined from 5 to $9. But what's what's interesting about it is that um, they were called the Brownlow uh, Black Ball Team, and I think it was because uh, Governor Brownlow was a unionist, and he was very sympathetic to the civil rights of African Americans at the time. But this was as early as 1866.
2: Uh, Quite interesting. Well, um, we all know that uh, the Civil War introduced baseball to everyone. Hmm. Uh, when the soldiers had downtime, uh, they played baseball. And so baseball grew after the Civil War. And so people in in every community, black or white, was playing baseball. So baseball was, of course, America's, uh, America's game. And uh, people were going to play baseball, and baseball grew because of that. Uh, and it wasn't until people began to distinguish between black and right, white that uh, uh, that integration became a major problem and was cut uh, from growing, really eliminated from growing. The, uh, uh, excuse so me. I'm, I'm just saying that black communities
3: continue to play baseball. Exactly. The life of the Negro players included a lot of travel um, up to three or four games, up to three games a day and questionable field conditions. What was travel like in the Jim Crow South? Did you get a feel for that from talking to your dad or your research?
2: Oh, sure. Um, I interviewed several uh, Negro League players before they passed in researching my book. Uh, Butch McCord, uh, uh uh, Jim Zapp, um, several of them, uh, Sidney Bunch. Uh, my dad would talk about it uh, after I discovered <laughs> that he was a professional baseball player, and it it was um, it was dangerous. But because they traveled together in a bus that was designated as a baseball team, um, they didn't encounter. Uh, major, major issues. The issues they had was uh, the bus breaking down and uh, being able to use uh, bathroom facilities, being able to eat. They would have to go to either a church that would supply food or to someone's home that would uh, fix uh, you know, food or sandwiches for them to carry on the road. Um, I remember my father telling me that when they had no choice and had to go to a white restaurant, they had to go to the back, knock on the door and make sure that they tell them that they had money. And if they could fix sandwiches or if they could if they had chicken or whatever, um, uh, they would fix it for them. They wouldn't turn down their money and um, and then they would give them uh, what they ordered. In through the back door, and they would exchange your know, money and that sort of thing.
3: And so um, that was a major problem. Were the accommodations yeah. traveling north different from traveling south? No. Okay. <laughs> no. no,
2: they had problems there too. Okay. And remember, the Nashville Eli Giants, which started here in Nashville, uh, really became uh, in the 30s, in the late 30s. Uh, the Baltimore Eli Giants. Mm-hmm. So they traveled uh, around the East, and they came down to the South, of course, and they had the same problem.
1: To your <laughs> to your point, if I may, to your point about dining facilities and restroom facilities, I found a quote. Uh, Hank Aaron uh, talked about this. He played in the Negro Leagues, of course, for a time. Uh, he played with the Indianapolis Clowns, and this this is a quote that I found uh, that he talked about having to travel and some of the difficulties. He wrote. We had breakfast while we were waiting for the rain to stop. He was playing in Washington, D.C. at this point. And I can still envision sitting with the clowns in a restaurant behind Griffith Stadium and hearing them break all the plates in the kitchen after we finished eating. What a horrible sound. Even as a kid, the irony of it hit me. Here we were in the capital, in the land of freedom and equality, and they had to destroy the plates that had touched the forks that had been in the mouths of black men. If dogs had eaten off those plates, they'd have washed them. And I thought that that was an incredibly poignant uh, statement with the difficulties, the challenges uh, of, of se- uh, the segre- uh, segregated country and having to navigate that. It's in- incredible, really.
3: I noticed that your father played in Cuba during the summer. Were the accommodations better or the same? They had no problems in Cuba. My
2: father and my mother, my mother is Cuban, um, and, uh, Often people asked when he was going to Cuba, why Why don't you go to Mexico? Why don't you go other places? We now know he was courting my mother. <laughs> <So> he,
3: <laughs> I saw he, that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so he made sure he went to Cuba every summer, most of the summers. And uh, they, they shared uh, everything. They went to restaurants, uh, just like you know we're sharing now. Um, they could go to any restaurant. They stayed in the same hotels. Um there was no distinction in Cuba and they loved it. And other uh, Caribbean countries, Mexico, uh, Dominican Republic, you know, we could go on and on. And my father said for the first time he really felt like a man uh, when you didn't have uh, rules in place that you had to make sure uh, don't do this, don't do that, don't go there, don't uh conversate, you know, don't 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 have a conversation with uh X, Y, and Z. So um he really felt very comfortable there. The Cuban people loved talent. They loved baseball talent. So that stated that they didn't care if you were black, white, Cuban. It it, it didn't matter. If you had talent, they loved you. And they loved my father. My mother told me that he was very popular in Cuba.
1: Uh, To this point, some African-Americans found interesting ways to continue to play, even in the midst of pretty extreme uh, uh, racism. The Cuban giants, for instance, formed in 1885 under the pretense of being dark skinned Latin Americans, thinking that they would be more accepted by by sort of following that line of thinking. They traversed the East in private railroad cars to play local squads. Uh, other teams are players trying to avoid some of the racism in this country uh, played in other Caribbean countries as well, as well as Canada. They were going up and playing uh, in Canada. So I, I find it fascinating that they're trying to find ways around. They're still playing the game. They're finding ways to play the game, uh, but they're trying to, to get around sort of that racist attitude in the United States that's prevalent from really the 1880s into the 1920s. We need to take our first break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation uh, with Dr. Harriet Kimbrough Hamilton talking about Negro League baseball. We'll be right back on History's Hook.
0: Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break.
3: Merry Christmas, everyone.
0: Whoa, hold on. It's way too early for that. Hello, this is Rick and Terry Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. Christmas is getting closer.
3: Let
2: Tillis Jewelry help make this holiday season a little less stressful. Did you know we offer layaway?
3: Come in, select the perfect gifts for your loved ones, put 20% down, and then pay it off before Christmas. And you know we carry a great selection of -of one-of-a-kind pieces, vintage jewelry, diamonds, and more. Stop by and let us help you find that perfect gift.
0: History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. I'm Tom Price, along with my co-host, Joanne McClellan. Together, we're talking to Dr. Harriet Kimbrough Hamilton, author of the book Home Plate, Henry Kimbrough and Other Negro Leaguers of Nashville, Tennessee, among other works. Uh, Dr. Hamilton, uh, we've been talking about sort of the formation of Negro League baseball, for a long time, there were many sort of independent teams that were playing the sport uh, as best they could. They would pick up games when they could. When do the formation of leagues happen? When does organization behind baseball begin?
2: Well, it started with Rube Foster, and you've already talked about Rube Foster being— um, and, and and Rube Foster is known as the father of the Negro Leagues— uh, as they were going, barnstorming around the nation, trying to find other African-American teams to play, or they would play anybody. But of course, white leagues, uh, white teams declined most of the time. Um, Rue Foster uh, came up with the idea that there should be organized Negro Leagues, and especially uh, for his Chicago American Giant team which was his team, Uh, and so he formed in uh, 1920 uh, the uh, Negro National League, and it comprised of uh, his team, another team out of Chicago, the Chicago Giants, uh, the Indianapolis uh, ABCs, as they were known at that time, uh, St. Louis Stars, um, the Detroit Stars. uh, You know, they had several teams. And so the owners all came together and said, we will play each other. And that would eliminate a lot of the barnstorming going around the country. So that started uh, the organization of leagues uh, for African-American players.
1: When did Nashville get a team in the Negro Leagues and how did it come about?
2: Well, that is very interesting in my book. 2015 that I wrote Daddy Scrapbook, there is a connection between Rube Foster, the father of the Negro League, and Tom Wilson, who uh, is our uh, father of uh, Negro Leagues, uh, Negro teams uh, here in Nashville. And of course, his career goes on to be a part of uh, the national scene of Negro League Baseball in the 1930s. But in 1914, Rube Foster brought his team, the uh, the Giants, the American Giants, Chicago American Giants, here to play in an exhibition game uh, with the Nashville City, uh, Capital City League that was being played here in Nashville. And so Tom Wilson and Ruth Foster I guess, exchanged ideas or he was motivated by Rue Foster. And um, the next year, 1921, uh, Tom Wilson organizes the uh, Negro Southern League. And these were teams out of the South, Birmingham Black Barons, his team, uh, the Nashville Elite Giants, because he was the owner of the Nashville Elite Giants uh, at that time. Um, the Atlanta Black Crackers, uh, on and on. And eventually the Memphis Red Sox became a part <laughs> mm-hmm. of the Southern League. So he began, he, he organized that and served in uh, different capacity as president, as secretary, treasurer. Uh, so uh, he was our Rube Foster here in Nashville uh, and a, a very successful businessman. Who right. loved and had a passion for baseball.
1: He was a nightclub owner, if I remember correctly. Um, and and that was my next question: Are these men who are organizing these leagues are they prominent business people? Uh, are they well connected people? Can you give us is there sort of a profile for these guys who are who are creating these? And these are these are significant organizations, as you said, Rube Foster. When he starts the Negro National League, he's got teams out of Chicago. He's got teams out of Dayton, Ohio, Detroit, Kansas City, Indianapolis. This is a national endeavor. Who who were Rube Foster and Tom Wilson in terms of their background that they were able to create sort of these big organizations?
2: Well, they all made their money different kind of ways. Um, for Tom Wilson, uh, he had a transit uh, company of sorts, a commuter transit company of sort that uh, hooked up Franklin to Nashville. Uh, and I don't know if he expanded to other uh, areas. Uh, and, and yes, he had other businesses. And, and he was known as a very prominent businessman uh, that was very successful in Nashville, uh, considered uh, financially uh, rich by our standards, I would assume, Uh, So all of these men had uh, business ventures in their, in the community, in their community, which was the black community. And they were all successful businessmen.
1: Does the business of baseball, is that a going concern? Are, are, is money being made? Do we know what level? I mean, are, are players being paid? Are they being paid well? Is, is this a... I mean, we think of Major League Baseball today; it's billions of dollars in their operations. What are we talking about in terms of the Negro Leagues? Are these financial? Are these going concerns financially?
2: Of course, uh, that's if you study, and, or if you just read about the Negro Leagues. Uh, the leagues, so many leagues, start and they fold, and they start and they fold. Uh, the Negro National League that Rue Foster started. Uh, continues as long as he's at the helm and uh, when he's no longer at the helm, which was uh, maybe into 10 years, uh, it folds. And uh, the Negro Southern suddenly would start and stop and start and stop again. So it was not a consistent and lucrative financial venture. Uh, there was money to be made uh, until the bottom drops out. In terms of the salary for the players, if you compare if you compare that to uh, what the white players were making, no, they weren't. They were not making the same salary. Only the top players, like a Satchel Paige, uh, Josh Gibson, uh, Cool Papa Bell, these men that were known and were bringing in the fans, uh, got top salary. Hmm. Uh, The rest were were, were given the minimum. And Uh, I can tell you from uh, my father's uh, experience, and he at one point made, uh, I think he told me, $300 a month. In the 1930s, that was a lot of money uh, compared to the rest of the African-American community. Uh, and, And my father only had a sixth grade education. So for a man that only uh, had a sixth grade education because he was not allowed to go forward on that, not by his choice, that was a lot of money. That was a lot of money. The, and
1: the average he, income for a working man in 1940 was a little bit less than $1,000 a year. So when you're talking about $300 a month, yeah, that's, that's significant money in the 1930s. That
3: was more than the teachers were making. With education in the in the 1940s, Uh, Harriet, uh, your dad started his career in 1937, in the midst of the Great Depression. What impact did that have on the Negro Leagues? Well,
2: um, I know on in in on the books it says 1937. Okay, he played played before that. Okay, Uh, he traveled with uh, Tom Wilson's team. Uh, to Cleveland when they were the Cleveland Eli Giants, 1936, backtracking. Um, There was a man named Candy Taylor that barnstormed uh, in the South. He was from Chicago. He was managing the Chicago team. But uh, my father first joined uh, a black team with Candy Taylor, who was barnstorming in the South, and picked my father up. Before then, my father refused to play with Tom Wilson because he said, I've never traveled anywhere, so um, I, I, I can't see myself traveling. But he went with Candy Taylor, and when he came back, that's when he joined Tom Wilson's uh, group, okay. uh, the okay. Eli Giants. What, so,
3: what, what, exa- what exactly is barnstorming? Can you define that?
2: Yes. Barnstorming was an unofficial uh, schedule, okay. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to put it bluntly. Uh, we, we may go into a city to play one team and then we may find another team to play and we'll stay in that city as long as we've got people to play. So it was an unofficial schedule okay. for uh, black
1: teams. OK. Where did the Nashville Elite Giants play? What was where did, where was their field or stadium?
2: Uh, Well, they played at the Sufferdale. But in 1928, uh, Tom Wilson built his own stadium, the only black owned stadium in uh, in the South, Hmm. which was uh, uh, quite impressive at the time.
3: There's a historical marker there now, isn't there? There
2: is a historical marker on Second Avenue. Okay. the uh, field itself. Uh, was about a mile from going north uh, from the fairgrounds. Okay. Uh, and it was situated at what they call Tremble Bottom, which was a bottom, truly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it was uh, an area that was uh, lower than the street. And so that's where, and it was in the black community in the South, uh, South Nashville uh, of Nashville. And- it it drew a lot of people, and in some instances, it is documented that when uh, the Negro Leagues played there, when the team played there, uh, they had integrated uh, fans. Of course, you know the the white fans had a designated area, and the African American fans had a designated area. But uh, it it was documented that uh, people came to see talent. And one thing that baseball always, always uh, respected was talent, uh, even
1: in the midst of segregation. How were players discovered and recruited for teams?
2: Well, my father told me the story that he grew up in the Napier area. Uh, There was a Napier Park in South Nashville, Mm -hmm. not far from where he grew up. And so when you became a youth and was able to play in the different pickup games, that's how everything started. Pickup game. There was always a a game to be played at the ball field or uh, at the ballpark. Um, And so it was unofficial, but uh, the best talent, of course, uh, would play. And so Tom Wilson recruited, uh, the best ball players, not only in the Nashville area but surrounding area, Columbia, as we know, uh, all of the areas, uh, he would uh, he would not see them, but other people would bring talent to him, and then if he really was interested in it, he would go see the individual play, and that's how my father was recruited uh, because he could play and he stood out. And so uh, most of the talent came from uh, the Nashville area and the Memphis area and Chattanooga area and the Knoxville area. And so uh, his his talent pool was huge. His talent pool was
3: very
1: huge. Joanne, Columbia and Murray County had a few players uh, in the Negro leagues. Who were were some of the? Men who played baseball from here.
3: Well, we have one that was actually um, mentioned in uh, Harriet's book. His name was Robert Abernathy, and uh, he started playing in Sandlot uh, baseball up in Nashville with an N and T Tiger team in the 1940s. And from there, he moved to California, and he before um, and working for the defense industry during the war and then after the war he played for the Kansas City Monarchs and then Indianapolis Clowns uh, then joining the New York Cubans he was known for like a line drive hitter uh, with power and um, he um, he was injured uh, in his prime he became uh, actually an invalid and uh, after baseball he um, operated a dry cleaning company up in Nashville and uh Harriet he was on one of your uh, he was on that uh, NPT um, documentary that you shared with me he was yes uh, he and he ended up dying in 1997 at age 90 there was another player from Murray County that's probably uh, not well known and his name was Johnny Childress and he went to school here in um, Columbia College Hill in and Carver Smith and he he was actually, uh, he actually played in the Yankee Stadium, I mean Griffith Stadium and in Yankee Stadium, and he played against the Memphis Red Sox several times. And several scouts were uh, looking at him and a couple other players um, in 1958. And shortly after that, he was, um, he actually uh, left baseball. But uh, he had a very good, his last year, he had a very good um, um, hitting, I think, very good hitting average. And he was a uh, uh, earned run average, excuse me. And um, he was a very, very good player. Before joining um, the professionals, he um, played for a local team down here that was sponsored by Monsanto Corporation called the Monsanto Red Sox. Mm-hmm. The third player that I think is really, really fascinating, he started in, um, in I think, 19, 1917. And from baseball, um, he ended up becoming a college professor. He was from um, Memphis, Tennessee, and he um, ended up writing a ended up writing a book. Um, he was a coach. I uh, worked for the Negro or the Colored YMCA. So he ended up leaving um, baseball altogether and ended up a career in education. His name was William Horace uh, Kendall.
1: Um. As you're telling these stories, Joanne, it's prompting me to think baseball now has a season. I I think it was a little looser in the early part of the 20th century. But did did all these players, it sounds like to me, did all of these players have secondary jobs that they had to go back to? Were, were any of them making enough money to make baseball a career for a time? Or were they typically having to go back to regular jobs?
3: I think um, uh, Kendall especially, he always did something in between. Uh, he would uh, play baseball and he would get his education. Actually, um Harriet, he graduated from Fish University. Uh, he would, and the other players too, they all had additional jobs in between. Okay. All right. I know a Kendall uh, <laughs>
2: that graduated from Fisk.
3: Well, this uh, guy graduated uh, long before your time. He graduated uh, in, um, let me see. I think he graduated from Fish University in 1914,
2: long before your time. <laughs> well, I... Uh, I graduated, I didn't graduate with a Kindle, but I knew a Kindle uh, uh, individual. Okay. That w- was at Fizz. Okay. Uh, so maybe they are related. Related. Right.
3: They, they very well could be related.
1: We're going to take our second break. When we come back, uh, Dr. Hamilton, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your dad and his life in Negro League Baseball. We'll be right back on History's Hook.
0: Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're discussing Negro League baseball, uh, both nationally and as well as in Tennessee and even locally. Our guest today is Dr. Harriet Kimbrough Hamilton, uh, prolific author on the Negro Leagues, Dr. Hamilton, your father was Henry Kimbrough, who played for the Negro Leagues. Uh, Give us a little bit about his background. Where did he come from? What was his childhood like?
3: Well, he grew up
2: really in what they call Davidson County, outside of Nashville, just a little bit outside Nashville. Now, where he grew up, uh, the Trevecca College area, uh, that's considered Nashville, of course. Now. And uh, he grew up in a large family um, and his father died when he was a teenager. And uh, and so uh, his 12 brothers and sisters and his mom um, had to make it from there. And economically, uh, my aunt told me that they never they never went hungry. And uh, my grandmother was a laundress. She took in laundry. She worked hard in providing for the family. And at an early age when they did not go to school, everybody had to go to work. And that's how they made it economically.
1: What year was your father father, born? Go ahead. What year was your father born? Uh,
2: 1912.
1: 1912.
2: Okay. And so he saw a lot of harsh, cruel racism. Uh, There's no other way to put it. Uh, and that really molded him. He was a, an individual that, uh, had a short fuse, (laughs) uh, to put it nicely. Uh, he had a temper and I think just knowing and seeing and, and, and seeing people mistreated, um, made that fuse even shorter. My father was a very no nonsense person and, uh, he saw people cheated, uh, he saw people taken advantage of, and uh, that really, really uh, made him very distrustful of people in any situation. And so he did not, because he only had a sixth grade education, he felt like he was limited in communicating with people and and trying to explain positions and things of that nature. So... Hmm. He was probably the first to throw the first punch <laughs> before <laughs> uh, using his verbal language <laughs> to uh, defuse the situation. And he taught us to really be uh, a person that uh, tried to better themselves always. Um, he had a rule in the house that everybody in the household was going to go to college. And we all did. Hmm. That was just a rule. Uh, that we were, we were not going to break. And so we all did. We all went to college because he felt education was so important in being able to communicate with other people and being able to diffuse situation and being able to see mistreatment and wrong.
1: It's such uh, a huge lesson learned uh, and one that you would certainly listen to from a man like Henry Kimbrough, who had an opportunity to travel around the country, travel around the world. His perspective was larger than Nashville, Uh, but just having a sixth grade education, he saw firsthand the power of education. It's interesting that he instills that into his children. How did he get interested in baseball?
2: Well, baseball was just what everybody played Hmm. uh, in the community. In the black community, in the white community, there was always a baseball game. Uh, All you needed was an open field. And if you didn't have a bat, you got a stick. And if you didn't have a ball, you got the biggest rock. You know, kids improvise. And so uh, he played baseball. And uh, as he played baseball, uh, he became uh, somewhat uh, someone that was good at it, as most people described him, uh, watching him play. He was good at this game of baseball. He had speed. He had power. And there's an interesting story about my father that's in my book, my first book. Most people thought that my father was born strong. Well, he had to have some type of, you know, I believe people are born with with certain type of strengths. And uh, he was powerful. His arms were powerful. His hands were powerful. His shoulders were powerful. And that made him a powerful hitter in terms of line drive. But uh, after he was not allowed, he, he when he was not allowed to go past the sixth grade, um, he had to go to work. And he worked at a gas station owned by an Irishman uh, that had a couple of sons that worked there also. And they would mistreat my father in terms of of fighting him, uh, beating him up at the beginning, as he stated. And this is from my father's own mouth. And so he decided that he, he could not quit his job. He was not going to quit his job because that brought money into the household. So this was a point of survival. He decided he was going to get strong enough to beat up both of them. <laughs> so he trained himself. He got a ladder and put, put the ladder on top of haystacks of hay. And he would do the monkey bar thing where he would go back and forth. He jumped rope. Uh, he did push-ups, pull-ups. Uh, he trained himself. And so one day, uh, I don't know how many years it took, but again, uh, the uh, boys began to pick on him and call the names and uh, start a fight. And he, this is his own saying, he beat up both of them at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> now I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know, uh, you know, how how deep that went. Whether he beat up one first and went to the other, uh, but that's the way he, he told it. And my father got strong because of it. That's how he gained his upper body uh, super strength in terms of being able to hit and throw the ball. He was known as uh, a deep thrower. He played center field ah. and he could throw that ball uh, you know, to the catcher or first base wherever he needed to throw the ball. And so that's how he got his strength and that's how he became a very good player. Now he also had Foot speed, uh, And this is my last story. So because I can tell stories all day about my dad. But when we uh, when we were about four or five, six years old and my father was playing in Hadley Park, this is after he retired and he would just play uh, in the league, the local league. After the games, my mom would let us run down to the dugout, you know, get the get whatever. I always got my father's hat. That was my thing. I had to have Daddy's hat put on my head, and uh, he would say, "Well, you see where Mama is. I'll race you to her." And he would always he said, now, "I'm going to wait till you get halfway there, and then I'm going to come and 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 try to beat you." Well, we would take off running all the time, and of course, I'm being very optimistic with the hat. You know, I'm 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 invincible. I, I'm going to beat Daddy. At six and seven years. Yeah. You know. And, uh, every time, every race, we would get halfway there, my brother and I, and all of a sudden I could just remember this dash of wind just whoop, would pass me by. <laughs> <laughs> and every time I take off the hat and I throw it to the ground because I'm more like my father than I am my mother. And most people will tell you that, um, and my father would come back, and I remember he came back one time, and he said, don't ever quit, because I did. I quit as soon as I saw the wind pass me, I quit, and take the hat and throw it down in the ground. <laughs> and uh, he said, never quit. I never want to see you quit. He said, now, I beat you today. He said, uh, but one day you will be able to beat me. And uh, then he say, then he would say, But today is not the day. (laughs) So um, I learned a lesson of never quitting, uh, regardless of what the situation was, whether it was on the sports field or the academic field or whatever field it was. Uh, My father taught me never, ever quit because my day will come.
0: Uh, Uh,
3: Harriet, your your dad had two nicknames. Were there any significance to those names? One was Jimbo and one was Kimmy.
2: Well, Kimmy was short for Kimbrough. okay <laughs> and and I can understand it right uh, the other I think uh, was because he was not a big man okay compared to some of the other players he was not a he, he was stocky he was five six five seven and uh maybe possibly five eight I don't know as a child my father was always bigger than I was so um but compared to the other players he was not but on the baseball field, he was considered large.
1: Who were some of the threw teams? The
2: ball, the way he he batted, the way he he was sort of like uh, uh, Mr. Hustle. Uh, he was going to give it every last inch of his being in whatever was going on on the baseball field. So, uh, Jumbo, I think, came from the fact that he played larger than what than than what he was or the, what he seemed.
1: What were some of the teams that he played for?
2: Well, he played, he was an Eli Giant longer than anyone else. He started with the Nashville Eli Giants and went with them wherever they went because they had several places, several other places that they moved from Nashville. Uh, In 1941, he was traded to the New York Black Yankees, and uh, the, uh, the manager there wanted him to be a home run hitter. And he wasn't a home run hitter. He could hit home runs, but he was a line driver. And so he started him as uh, the uh, fourth player uh, in baseball. And that's the cleanup man. And he didn't like that at all. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, uh, Tom Wilson brought him back after a year and he got his position back as uh
3: the lead off
2: the leadoff man, the first batter.
3: And they termed his style as slap hitting. Um, he never called it that.
2: <laughs> Other people called it that. Okay. He never called himself, uh, he called himself a line, a line drive
3: hitter. hitter Okay,
2: because if you could hit the ball in between players, exactly, people could run from one base, people could steal bases. People, could, you you also can bring in third base person in to, uh, to home. So um, he was very very proud of that. And then when the uh, Eli Giants uh, uh, folded in Baltimore, he came to the uh, Birmingham Black Barons, which he uh, from 1951 to 1953, and then he retired in 1953.
1: In 1942, former UCLA star athlete Jackie Robinson and other another black player named Nate Moreland were granted a cursory workout with the Chicago White Sox. The 1944 death of baseball commer- commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who is a strict segregationist, provided another opening. And in 1945, sports writers engineered tryouts for Negro Leaguers with the Brooklyn Dodgers and Boston Red Sox. As it turned out, Dodgers general manager Branch Rickey was already scouting African-Americans under the guise of creating a new Negro league, but in reality, he was recruiting for his own team. He forged a secret agreement with Robinson in August of 1945 and shook the baseball world with his official announcement in October. Following an outstanding season with the minor league Montreal Royals in 1946, Jackie Robinson officially integrated major league baseball by manning first base for the Dodgers on April 15th of 1947. This is a turning point in sports history, yet it also marks the beginning of the end for the Negro Leagues. There seems to be a certain sense of loss, although integrating sports is of course a very positive thing. The loss of the Negro Leagues was felt in the sports world and certainly by the players themselves. Uh, Dr. Hamilton, do we know what percentage of Negro League players got drafted into the major leagues after
2: 1947? Um, well, um, it, it, Butch McCord, which I call the historian or the, uh, the ambassador of uh, Negro League history before he passed, uh, I had extensive talks with him. And uh, he was a great historian about what happened to uh, Negro Leagues um it was not easy for african americans to follow Jackie uh, they really they, major league baseball was not ready uh when Jackie Leagues came branch ricky made that happen but uh the others were not um convinced and so as Jackie went on and 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 then came uh roy campanella to the dodgers and and other people in, in other, for other teams uh, it still was not easy and what I was told by Butch McCord is that there was a fence that was built before you can get to Major League Baseball and that was the minor leagues
0: mm-hmm.
2: that was the minor leagues, that was the fence that was the barrier so you had to, black players had to uh, wait their turn in minor league and it wasn't always fair And so um, there was not a large percentage of African-Americans. They thought the floodgates would open up. It took several years before that happened. And there were barriers in place to ensure that there was only enough African-Americans. There was only maybe one or two to a team. They were not ready to see uh, white ballplayers being replaced by african-american ballplayers
3: is this why so many of the african-american players went to canada and mexico and yes
2: in fact uh one of our tennesseans uh, bill wright uh from Milan, tennessee he's in the uh, tennessee sports hall of fame along with my dad my dad is in the tennessee sports hall of fame um he played for the baltimore elites and if you ever see a picture of bill wright He is a monster of an athlete. He would be uh, a Cam Newton today. Uh, Awesome build, very strong uh, player. And so um, he left the United States uh, after several years playing in the Negro Leagues and went to Mexico Mm -hmm. and became a superstar in Mexico and is in the Mexican Baseball Hall of Fame. Hmm. He's in, he's in another country's Baseball Hall of Fame. That's how good he was. And yeah, a lot of them, uh, after seeing that the gates were not completely open, um, went on to other places where they would be welcome. And of course, they knew the Caribbean countries had open doors because they appreciated talent. They didn't care what color you were. They appreciated baseball talent.
1: Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. Dr. Harriet Kimbrough Hamilton, thank you so much for joining us on History's Hook and sharing the story. It's an important one. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.
1: We end the show with this quote from Jackie Robinson. There's not an American in this country free until every one of us is free. As always, thank you to our listeners. You can hear all of our History's Hook episodes online at WKOMradio.com as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Join us again next week as we continue To look at the history in your backyard and connect it to the world on another edition of History's Hook.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time.